the series is called We Have This Treasure, that God has somehow in his sovereign grace put this tre his treasure into our hearts. So we have this treasure in jars of clay, and that shows that the surpassing power comes from God rather than us. Now we've uh, arrived on chapter 5, the second part of chapter 5. Last week we talked about being made to live forever, that that earthly body that we have is going to assume a heavenly body, and it's not going to be run down, it's not going to be weak or frail anymore, it's going to be a resurrection body just like Jesus. This week we're going to talk about be, uh, becoming and uh, growing in our capacity as ministers of reconciliation. So let's pray and ask God his blessing on the message. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the clarity, the unction, the, uh, the power to, to speak it clearly as I should. And uh, I pray for our listeners too. Lord, may your Holy Spirit open up our hearts, our minds, help us to listen and to grasp uh, to understand clearly what your will is for our lives through the message of your word. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, one of the questions for us is, uh, uh, as we're going through life, is what are we living for? What is our mission in life? What on earth are we here for? Um, I know the Apostle Paul has a mission in life. I remember being a, uh, a sophomore my second year at Hope International University. We were going through a class in preparation for ministry, and uh, one of the exercises they did was they, they had a gravestone kind of drawn on a piece of paper with RIP on it, which means rest in peace. And uh, the question at the top was, what do you want written on your own epitaph? Or... In other words, when you die and somebody stands up at your funeral and says some words about you, what would you like them to say about you? What would you like to be remembered for? I went on the internet where all funny things are found, and I found some funny actual sayings that are actually engraved on gravestones out there in the world today. Uh, actually said on people's tombstones. The first one was, I was supposed to live to be 102 and shot by a jealous husband. <laughs> Number two, I told you I was sick. <laughs> Number three, you can stop clapping now. Man, somebody was pretty sarcastic in <laughs> that one. Uh, actually, this is on Rodney Dangerfield's tombstone. It says, there goes the neighborhood. That guy gets no respect anywhere he goes. Uh, number five, oh, the mother-in-law jokes never stop. My mother-in-law's chicken really is to die for. Uh, another one is you can find me now at undergroundblogger.com. Ooh. Uh, the other one, you should see the other guy. And then my favorite, because I, I, I love puns, I love plays on words. It says, What? I asked for a tomb with a view. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I was actually doing a funeral service up at Rose Hills Memorial Garden, uh, looking out over the freeway toward L.A., beautiful view. The, the gravestone, the, the burial plot was actually up on a hill looking out over the entire L.A. basin area. And a young man actually came up to me after the service and he says, uh, good job, pastor. And he says, isn't it nice that she has such a beautiful view up here? And I thought, okay, <laughs> uh, that's nice. <laughs> that's another sermon. So it wasn't really time to preach to him at that moment. 
So if somebody were to write on your epitaph right now, what do you think they would say? What would you like them to say about you? I think the Apostle Paul, in a way, wrote his own epitaph. He, he sort of wrote the words that he wanted to be remembered by when he came to the end of his life. Because by history, we know that the last letter Paul wrote that we have recorded in the New Testament is a letter that he wrote to his protege, a young pastor named Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says these words about himself as he's getting ready to go die and be with Christ. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there awaits for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will grant to me on that day. Wow, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. What a great epitaph to be writing about uh, anybody. And I'd hope that those kinds of words would be said about me. I hope they'd be said about you when you reach the end of your life. So now that, Paul, we're thinking about what do we want written on our epitaph, come back here to earth and say, okay, how can I make what is written on that epitaph come true with the rest of the way that I live my life? And so Paul says here in verse 11, he says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. You remember that the last verse we read from last week was uh, chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, for we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that will all be rewarded, each according to what we have done. So Paul says, in, in light of the fact that we're all going to appear as Christians before the judgment seat of Christ to receive our rewards for Christian service or lack of rewards, Paul says, hey, now that we know what it is to fear the Lord, we're going to try to persuade others. We're going to try to lead others into that relationship. And so Paul's going on and he's coming back to the Corinthians and he's basically saying, I wish you guys would just trust me. Uh, that I am the real deal and that you wouldn't uh, shake your confidence in me. So he says, what we are is plain to God. I hope it's plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We're trying to give you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And Paul says, you want to know what's in my heart? It's nothing but sincere love for you. It's nothing um, but... Uh, the a pastor's heart trying to get you to understand God's will for your lives and our lives so that we can serve the Lord effectively together. Now, how do you go about building trust? I mean, the whole letter, you read 2 Corinthians, and I hope you're reading it this summer. I hope you'll read chapter 6 in preparation for next week's message about living in hardship. But this whole message, Paul is trying to regain the trust of the Corinthian people. And I ask you a question, how do you go about building trust? How do you regain the trust of somebody? I have three basic ways. Number one, you got to be honest with them. You got to let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you say something to them is true, it needs to be true. You, you, your word needs to be trustworthy. So be honest. Number two, keep your word. If you make a promise to somebody, do your best to keep it. Now, again, there's always, there's not always, there's often a circumstance, there's an emergency, a crisis that comes up where maybe you can't keep your word. But the idea is, is your intent. Your intent is if I make you a promise, I'm going to do my best to keep it. If I make a vow I'm, to you, I'm going to do my best to fulfill it. So be honest with people. Keep your word to people and then show them, not just in your words, but show them that you really care about them. Paul's been trying to do this the entire time with the Corinthian people to regain their trust. 
Now, Paul knows about the judgment seat of Christ. Paul knows uh, what it's like to fear the Lord. And so another question you can ask is, what is it that motivates Paul? What is it that motivates him to go through all these hardships and setbacks and oppositions and uh, criticisms and second guessing by all these people throughout all these churches? What motivates Paul to keep on going? We reach verse 14 And Paul says this, for Christ's love compels us. In other words, it's not my love for Christ that motivates me. It's his love for me. That's what's energizing me. That's what is motivating me to do what I do. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that all died. In a sense, we all died to sin. We all died to ourselves. We all died to our old way of life. When you and I entered those waters of baptism, it it literally says that, that we were being buried with Christ, dying to our old way of life, to be raised up out of that water, just like a death and a burial and a picture of a resurrection, that we would walk in newness of life. And so we're, we all died in a sense when we followed Christ. And now we get the motivation. So what is it that changes in our motivation when we come up out of those waters of baptism and say, I don't want to live just for myself anymore. And he says, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Kelly Minter, who wrote that book called All Things New, and I know many of you women went through that that study in this last year, writing on the book of 2 Corinthians. Kelly Minter writes this, simply put, when the love of Jesus is what is holding and compelling you, then you will selflessly bless and serve other people. In other words, when Christ's love enters our heart and we start having his love for people rather than our limited love for people, we're not just going to live for ourselves anymore. We're going to live to bless other people and to serve them and to help them grow in their relationship with God. It's not just about me anymore. It's going to be about other people and what Jesus wants to do in other people's lives. So we have these basically three stages of understanding here in this verse. It says, first of all, we realize, wow, Jesus died. He gave his life for all people. Number two, all people need Jesus. It's not just people who are lost, the dirty, rotten sinners out there. Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs a saving relationship because they need him to forgive them and to give them eternal life. So Jesus died for all. All people need Jesus. And then number three, once we give our lives to Jesus, once we surrender our will to his will and say, not my will be done with my life, Lord, I want your will to be done with my life, then we start living to please him. We start joining Jesus in his rescue operation. And so you and I need to ask ourselves two basic questions. The first, excuse me, the first question is, How much do I believe Jesus can change me? Because that's where it really starts. You and I are never going to enter into God's mission operation. We're never going to start living life on mission for Jesus unless we believe and start trusting Jesus. You know what? You have the power to change me. You have the power to take this selfish, self-centered person who only wants what I want for me, and you say, you can subordinate that self-will, and you can say, I'm going to now start living for the will of Jesus rather than for the will of myself. So how much do I believe Jesus can change me? And then the next question is, how much do I believe Jesus can change someone else? 
Because if Jesus has the power to change me and my stubborn will, then he also has the power to change other people. And the way that that change begins, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when they start hearing the good news message, that is the beginning of the catalyst of change in their life. And that's why I get changed from a selfless person to a Christ-centered person, start living for him, and then you start seeing other people's lives changed around you. And so Paul continues in verse 16, he says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You ask Jewish people who do not believe in Jesus why they don't believe Jesus is Messiah, and one of their main objections is, according to the Old Testament scriptures, when Christ was to come or when the Messiah was to show up, he was supposed to be the conquering hero. He was supposed to be the one who, who uh, defeated the oppressors, who kicked out the enemies of God from the land of Israel, and he was supposed to reestablish the throne of David. He was to reestablish the nation and the people of God in Israel. And since Messiah, since Jesus, who claimed to be Messiah, since he didn't do that, that's why they don't believe he's Messiah. And what they missed out on was before he was going to be the righteous king coming in all his glory, Jesus first, or Messiah, first had to be the suffering servant. Just like we read in Isaiah 53 in preparation for communion. So Paul says we used to look at Jesus that way. We used to even look at Christ from a worldly point of view, but now we see him differently. We don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We do so no longer. And, and he says, because why? Because in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation or the new creation has come. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Very well-known verse. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. You know, you and I, I, maybe you didn't, but I'll just confess that I had, that I used to do this. I used to evaluate people. I used to say, well, how do they look? Or what do they have? Or what kind of influence do they have? You know, how much do they, quote, matter on the scale of importance in this world? That's the way I used to see people. But now, as Jesus followers, we start to see people in a different way. We start to look at people through Christ's eyes rather than through the world's eyes. We need to see people as invaluable creatures created by God, made in his image, invaluable to him and invaluable to us. We need to look past their words. We need to look past their actions. We need to look into their hearts. We need to be drawn to them because we genuinely love them. And, we lo and if, we genuinely, if you genuinely love someone, you're going to say, what is your greatest need and how can I help you meet that need? And anybody who's outside of saving relationship with Christ, their greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Their greatest need is to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so as I communicate the good news message with them, I'm actually loving them the most to help them see their need for the Savior. For those of us who are in Christ by faith, again, because the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So it's not just that we're being reformed. It's not just that we're being rehabilitated. It's not just that we're being rehashed. 
It's not even like the green, go green outside in the people in our community. It's not even that we're being recycled. All those things are good, but the gospel goes way beyond that. The Bible says we're being recreated. We're being remade in the image of Christ as we put our faith and trust in him. And that's something worth living for. That's something worth going on mission for God before. And so what we, we basically say is we say, okay, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm going to follow you, and I'm ready to live completely for you. And so now that I'm ready to do that, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Let's verse, let's look, let's verse it, look. Let's look at verse 18 and 19, because this is where I'm going. I did just lay my cards on the table. I'm going right here, and this is where I want to camp out. Verses 18, 19, and 20. And it says, okay, so Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do now that I'm surrendering my life to you? Now that you said that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose, was raised to life for them. What do you want me to live now that I have this new life in you? Paul's attitude completely changed. And he says, all this is from God. All this reconciliation, all this new creation in Christ. It's all from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God, now Paul says, okay, I'm going to explain it to you one more time. I'm going to say it to you a slightly different way to see if you, it'll really sink in. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And when God does that, then he's no longer counting people's sins against them. Because you don't have to pay for your sins anymore because Jesus already paid for your sins when he died on the cross. You can be forgiven. So God's reconciling the world himself in Christ. And he says, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's where we're at. The bottom line is this. If you and I, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then you were made for a mission. And God is calling you to join him in this mission in this world. And here's another truth, and, I, and this is, might be a little harsh, but the truth is that you and I cannot be all that God intends us to be until we accept our life mission, until we agree to go on mission for God. Although it is a, quote, a done deed as a result of what Jesus did in his work on the cross, that done deed, that death on the atoning sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross, that has to be personally appropriated by every individual here on this earth. Every, in other words, Jesus died on the cross, yeah, but how does that appropriate to a, an individual's life? They have to come to Christ in humble faith and they have to ask him to come into, the, into their lives. That's why John chapter one says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That has to be personally appropriated. This is where Paul and the gospel ministry fits into the picture. We and those like Paul, we're functioning now being ministers of reconciliation. We are now God's agents in proclaiming what has been accomplished in Christ to use God's language. We've been appointed to preach or to share the message of reconciliation. And so look what it says on this graphic. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's an even loftier term. I love that one. We're, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So now Paul brings up a different analogy and a different metaphor. Now he starts calling us, we used to be messengers of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Now we're even a loftier title. Now we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You know, I got a sort of a secret to share with you. I told Lisa, when we first met, I was over a, 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 a student at Cal State Fullerton. Lisa was going to Hope International University. Uh, in the course of our courtship and our friendship and our involvement at this church in the, in the young adult ministry, it became apparent to me that to, to join God on his mission, I couldn't be an economics major anymore. I needed to go be, get trained for the ministry. And of course, she says, hey, do they have any missions degrees over at Cal State Fullerton? And I said, no, but I bet you, you know where there is a missions degree to be had. And she says, well, yeah, at the school that I go to. It happened to be right across the street from Cal State Fullerton. So I ended up transferring over to uh, Pacific Christian College. And I joined, the, I, I joined the, uh, the ministry and got trained for the ministry at that college. But, but before I did that, I told Lisa, she said, well, what, what is your goal in life? What do you really want to do? And I said, well, I took Spanish all the way through high school. And I really, I had this goal in mind. I even had a picture of myself in this black limousine pulling up to an embassy somewhere in Latin America. And I was going to be an ambassador for the United States of America in some Latin American country. And I was going to be the official representative of the United States of America. And the beauty of it is, is I got to, I got to, I got the privilege of having a much higher title and a much higher responsibility than representing the United States of America. Because now I get to represent the Lord God of heaven and the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I get to be his ambassador, and I get to go to anywhere in the world, and I get to represent him, and I get to tell people, and it says, we implore you, we're begging you, we're pleading with you on Christ's behalf, and it says, be reconciled to God. Make peace with God. Come to living faith in Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's the only way to the Father is through him because it was, as in verse 21, if we go to that next verse, it, it says the only, the only way to heaven is through Jesus because it says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Since God made Jesus the sin bearer, since he was the suffering servant Messiah, then we all get to have eternal life and forgiveness through Christ. And that only gets applied to each individual's life as they understand the gospel message and they believe the message and they respond to God in faith. And whoever gets to proclaim that gets to be an ambassador for Christ. And guess what? Guess who all the proclaimers are? Guess who all the spokesmen and the spokeswomen for Jesus are in this world? It's you and it's me. Because God says clearly in this passage, and he has committed to us, not just to me, Paul the apostle, but to all the believers in Christ. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. So I implore you, therefore, on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. Jesus said, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you keep your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, then you will find true life. Then you will find true life. You can join God by agreeing to be a minister of reconciliation. You can join God on the most significant mission in human history. You'll never find a more fulfilling pursuit than giving your time, your talents, your treasure toward being on mission with God. The ministry of reconciliation, I'm just going to drill into this, so just get ready. The ministry of reconciliation is your mission. 
That is, if, if you choose to accept it, it's not a building, it's people. The church is people on mission with Jesus. And so Jesus is sending you on mission with him. In fact, to be a missionary, the word missionary comes from a Latin word, missio, which means to be sent. So being a missionary is I'm a sent one. Jesus was a missionary from God the Father. The apostles were missionaries of Christ. They were officially sent out by Jesus. And now they've committed unto us because every generation needs ambassadors for Christ. Every generation needs people to say, I'll take the baton and I'll take it to my generation. I'll take it to the people around me, to wherever God has given me a sphere of influence. There's my mission field and I'm on mission for him. I'm sending you, and here it is. Where is God sending you on mission for him? Where are you to be going? Are you to be going far across the ocean or across a border? Well, maybe, but right now, at least not yet. Where is God sending you then? Well, he's sending you to your mission field. Happens to be called the United States of America. Happens to be called Sonoma County in Northern California. It happens to be this place, wherever God has you right now. That is your mission field. That is the place where you and I are to do the ministry of reconciliation. By the way, that's what the woman at the well did. She wasn't very long a believer in Jesus. John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria, asks this woman for a drink. She looks at him like, you've just broken so many cultural barriers right now. You're a Jew. You're obviously a rabbi. I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're talking, talking to me in public. No, no, taboo, no. You know, all that stuff is not supposed to be happening. But Jesus broke all those barriers to reach her and has a long conversation with her, tells a lot about herself. And then finally she says, well, I suppose that when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, guess what? I who am speaking to you right now, I am he. I am the Messiah. And she goes, goes, whoa. So she gets excited for Jesus. She realizes the Messiah has come. And what she does immediately is she says, wow, this good news is awesome. I have to go share it with somebody. It can't just be kept for myself. I need to go tell other people. And so she goes into the town. She leaves her water jar there, runs back to the town, says to the people, she says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this man be the Messiah? And the whole town, after the testimony and the invitation of this woman, the whole town comes out and makes their way toward Jesus. And it says, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed with them two days, and many more of them became believers. And listen to this. this is, and this is what somebody might say. This is, this is sort of an epitaph for this woman's life. Because look at what the people in Samaria, Samaria said to this woman after Jesus had been introduced to them through her testimony. She says, they said, we no longer believe now just because of what you said, but now we've heard for ourselves and we know now that this man really is the savior of the world. She became an instant minister of reconciliation. She went out and shared in her sphere of influence with the people that she knew, and she brought them to Jesus, and they became followers of Jesus. This is awesome. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the way, this is how we are able to have a right relationship with God. And it's, it's interesting. 
it says Jesus knew no sin and yet he became sin. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way like we were, but he's without sin. But he knew sin in a sense. He knew of it. He was around it when he was doing his life and his ministry, uh, but he never experienced it personally for himself. That's what gave him the right. That's what gave him the authority, the ability to be the sin bearer of the rest of the world so that you and I could be forgiven. So what are our action points for today? What does God want us to do? Because the Bible says, you know, now that you've heard these things, Jesus said, after he, remember, he washed his disciples' feet in John 13, and then he says, I've set you an example, and he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What does God want us to do with this message about hearing about this ministry of reconciliation, that God's reconciling the world to himself in Christ? He's not counting people's sins against them. And then he says he's committed to us, to us, the message of reconciliation. The first action point is this that we've got to learn is we've got to believe that Christ can change us. Let Christ change you. Remember, it's not just turning over a new leaf. It's not just being rehashed or reformed or recycled. It's being recreated. He's making all things new. He's changing us completely from the inside out so that we won't live for our, just ourselves anymore. We'll live in honor of him. Let Christ change you. Number two, we've also got to start seeing people with God's eyes. See other people the way Jesus sees them. You remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked out over the crowds and he said he saw this crowds of people and he said they looked harassed, they looked helpless. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus says, you know, go and ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, to send workers into his harvest field. That's another way of saying God has commissioned you and I to be ministers of reconciliation. God says it so many different ways. You get to Acts chapter 1 when we started this year. We talked about the church being on fire. Jesus says to his followers right before he sends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Just very similar ways of saying the same thing. See people the way Jesus sees them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Bring those lost sheep to the shepherd. That's what you would want. And wouldn't you love that written on your epitaph? This person brought lost sheep to the great shepherd. Love that to be written. And then number three, we can't just know the word. We can't just read about it and say, yeah, that's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. We've got to do something with it. We've got to commit to join Jesus in the ministry of reconciliation. We've got to say, wow, that ministry of reconciliation, that's not just for the pastors. That's not just for the missionaries. That's not just for God's superstars out there. That is for everyone. Everyone who's a follower of Christ is to be on mission in their lives for him and with him. Of course, number four, it's not written on here on an action step, but the number four may actually be for you today because maybe you haven't crossed the line of faith yet. Maybe you haven't yet taken this step of saying, wow, Jesus really died for me. There really is a way to be made right with God. I can have a living personal relationship with my creator through this redeemer, through this person, Jesus Christ. And the answer is yes. He says, and that's why Paul says, we implore you, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can have that today. Lord, make us passionate ministers of reconciliation for you. Lord, thank you that 
Someone in every generation was willing to take up that mantle of that, that baton of the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, in every person in this room, thank you that somebody in, somewhere in their past came across them and had a conversation with them and shared the good news about Christ with them and with me so that we could come into your family, so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And also, Lord, so that they could even pass the baton to us. And they say, you know, freely, freely you have received, now freely give. Lord, help us to become ministers of reconciliation. And if you're here with us this morning and if you're ready to be reconciled with God, if you hear that knock on the door of your heart from Jesus where he's asking to come in, would you just pray this prayer with me right now? Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that you are the savior of the world. I recognize that you, who knew no sin, that you were made to be sin, that you became the sin bearer, that you died on the cross for me for, and for my sins. And so Lord, I, am, I put my trust in you. I put my faith in you. Please save me. Please bring me into your family right now. Please, Lord, let me uh, understand what it is to be a child of God by faith. And Lord, when you do that, Lord, help me to understand what it means to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that from this day forward, I'm going to make it my priority to grow in my relationship with God through Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming into my life. I love you, Lord, and I pray in your name. Amen. Amen.